You're going to hear from Matt McGee after a little bit uh, just announcing about our uh, upcoming Relationship Summit. But let me just put a plug in for it as well this morning. I really hope that you'll come and be a part of that here in a couple of weekends away. Uh, one thing that you could do, we've printed these up. These are like little invitations that you could grab off of the table in the lobby as you sign up to come. Grab one of these, grab two or three of them, and hand them out to people and invite them. These would would just be an easy invite for you to give to somebody and encourage them to come and just invest in their their relationship, their marriage relationship. Uh, it would be a really good thing for you to do that. We're in Acts chapter 17 today, if you would like to turn there in your Bibles. Or, uh, this is the second missionary journey of Paul. Uh, actually, he started this missionary journey back in the tail end of chapter 15 of Acts. And uh, we're picking it up, chapter 17 here, beginning with verse 1. I want to read through verse 3. We're going to work our way through the first part of this chapter today. And when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Christ, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Now keep in mind, Paul is primarily speaking to the Jews in these verses. He's in the synagogues which is where the Jewish people met for worship, and he is reasoning with them from the Scriptures. In other words, he's dialoguing with them, he's talking with them, he's presenting evidence to them that the Messiah was to suffer and die and raise up from the dead. Now, all of that can be supported in the Old Testament Scriptures. But somehow, the Jewish people had missed that. They thought that the Messiah was coming to establish an earthly kingdom. They thought he was going to overthrow the government of Rome and the day would come that the Jews would then rule the world. This talk about a suffering Messiah and him being put to death was completely contrary to their thinking. And that's why Peter, when he was confronted with This happening when Jesus told him of his upcoming death and resurrection. Do you remember how Peter responded to Jesus? He said, no way. God forbid it, Lord, that this should happen to you. A suffering Messiah was not even on their radar. And yet, that is exactly what was supposed to happen. That's how our sins were going to be paid for. As I read here in Acts 17, that Paul is giving evidence to them about the suffering and the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, I'm wondering in my mind, what scriptures from the Old Testament did he use? Well, maybe he used Psalms 22. Where it says, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my feet... 
and my hands. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now that is a pretty good description of the crucifixion scene that happened 1,000 years later after the prophet had written it. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That David would write that, and a thousand years later, it happened just as he said it would, and yet the Jews missed it. They didn't understand it. Maybe Paul quoted from Isaiah 53, where it says this, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his his mouth. It is as though the prophet was there himself describing what he was seeing done to the Messiah. But do you realize this particular passage was written 750 years before any of these events happened? And yet the Jews missed it. They had failed to see the suffering of the Messiah. They failed to see the the prediction of the resurrection as well. And that's understandable. If they didn't expect for the Messiah to die, why would they have noticed anything being written about the resurrection? And yet it was there. For instance, Psalm 16 verse 10 says, "For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol." The NIV says it this way, "You will not abandon my soul to the realm of the dead." Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Wow. The prediction of his resurrection, and yet the Jews missed it entirely. Going all the way back to the first prophecy in Scripture about Jesus, Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Who is the seed of the woman? Jesus was. And God is saying to the serpent, you will bruise him on the heel. In other words, you will give him a very painful blow. If you've ever had a bruise on your heel, you know it is painful. And Jesus experienced great pain when he was suffering and being put to death on the, cr- on the cross on Calvary's hill. He had a bruise to his heel, you might say. But God says to the serpent, he will bruise you on the head. In other words, he will give to you a crushing blow. The prediction of what would happen with the Messiah, and yet the Jews had missed it. 
And did you know that probably Genesis is not the first book written in the Old Testament? Most scholars believe that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And even in that book, the oldest book of the Bible, the resurrection is mentioned. Job chapter 14, verse 14, a question is asked. The question is this, if a man dies, will he live again? Job 19.25 answers the question, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. And the fact that He resurrected gives to us a hope of the resurrection. And Job continues his thought in verse 26. He says, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. One prediction after another through the Old Testament Scriptures of Jesus' suffering and His death and His resurrection. And yet the Jews missed all of these prophecies. They did not understand that the Messiah would suffer and die and raise from the dead. And so here in Acts 17, Paul is giving to them evidence from those very scriptures that they believed in. And he says, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And verse 4, we see the impact and the power of God's Word. Let me read to you chapter 17, verse 4. It says, And some of them were persuaded. That word persuaded means to be convinced. Some of them were convinced. Some of them came to faith because of what they were hearing Paul say, because of the scriptures that he was referring to from the Old Testament. They listened to him. They yielded. They agreed with what he was saying. That's what that word means, where it says that some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas along with with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. I have mentioned this to you time and time again in this particular series through the book of Acts. If we will share the truth of God's Word with people, it has the power to change people's lives. And we saw that just a couple of weeks ago as Richard Koss was here. He stood right where I'm standing today and he preached to you the Word of God. He shared his testimony of what Jesus had done in his life and it touched people. It moved people to to a decision for Christ. That's what God's Word will do when we share it with others. It will change people's lives. This book has power. The Holy Spirit, along with this book, has power to change people's way of thinking. It can change people's lives. Now, it's sad if... We have this truth within us and we don't share it with others. We're robbing them of the chance to live forever. Paul, here in Thessalonica, was sharing the truth with people and there were a good number of people who were coming to faith. 
But where the gospel is, you can just know for sure that Satan is not very far away. Let me read to you verses 5 through 9 of this chapter. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the, and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, They release them. Now, I wasn't quite sure what verse 9 meant as I was reading through this myself. And so I I noticed a footnote in my study Bible alongside of verse 9, and it said this, and I quote to you, The authorities made Jason put up a bond, forfeitable if there was further trouble. That's what verse 9 means. My point is, when Christ is being preached and people are coming to faith, you can just expect for Satan to show his ugly head and try to cause trouble. He does not like it when people are changing their lives and giving their allegiance over to Jesus. And so let me say this to you. If you are a new Christian... Be aware of this truth. Satan is not happy with you. And he is going to seek to derail you. He will seek to destroy you. And he will send people. He will send circumstances to try and discourage you. And that's not just true for new Christians. That's true for any of us who when Christ is Lord of our life and there are good things happening with us and Jesus, Satan is not happy. He has his sights set on you. He wants to discourage you. He wants to derail you. But would you remember this promise, please? 1 John 4, 4, it says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? Would you read that with me? Let's, let's give God a hand for that. Let, read it with me. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, who is it that is in you that this verse is talking about? It's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. Greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. And the one who is in the world is Satan. Jesus is greater than Satan. Jesus is in us. And if Satan has his sight set on you, he's not happy with what's going on in your life because of Jesus. Greater is Jesus than Satan. Just surrender to Jesus. You keep on surrendering to Jesus. You keep on leaning on Jesus. You do not have to give in to the devil's schemes that are against you. Well, the best thing for Paul to do at this point 
was to leave and go somewhere else for his own safety and for the safety of Jason and others. Let me read to you verse 10 of chapter 17. It says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Guess what they're going to do again? What are they going to do again? They're going to preach some more. They're changing locations. They're changing from one city to the next, but they're not changing their ways. He is going to keep on preaching the truth of the gospel. He is not going to be derailed from his mission. Verse 11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Would, would you just take a moment and read that verse silently to yourself? They received the word with great eagerness. Could, could I ask you a question? And, and would you be honest with yourself? Do you receive the word of God with great eagerness? Do you come here on a Sunday morning eager to receive the Word of God? And someone might say this. They'll say, well, uh, you know, I, might, I might would be eager if you, Kevin, were a better communicator. Did you know that Paul referred to himself as one who was unskilled in speech? Check it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6. Paul refers to himself as one who was unskilled in speech. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, he writes, For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Isn't that amazing? I, mean, I find that very interesting that even the Apostle Paul had his critics. And the Apostle Paul had his quirks. Listen, I'll be the first to admit, I know, I know without a doubt, there are lots and lots of better orators out there than me. But what I am presenting to you on a Sunday morning is the Word of God, the Word of the living God, and we ought to come here with an eagerness to receive the Word. And I would love it if you would pray for me to be a better communicator of God's Word. I never want to stand in the way of God's Word being heard. But the, the fact is, we ought to come here on a Sunday morning with an eagerness to receive the Word of God into our heart. 
And here's another question. Maybe this is a better question, a more important question than the first one. Are you eager to receive God's word enough so that you will take the time to be in his word on a daily basis? I think that's a better question even than the first. Do you realize what this book could do for you? So so you, you have this eagerness to be in the Word on a regular, daily basis. If all you're getting of the Word of God is what is given to you on a Sunday morning, that's not going to be enough to sustain you. I don't care if Andy Stanley himself were up here every Sunday morning and preaching to you, or Billy Graham, or you name it, whoever you think is such a, a wonderful orator, if he were up here and delivering to the Word of God every Sunday, if that's all you were getting of the Word of God through the week, was a Sunday morning message, it's not enough to sustain you any more than what one meal would be enough to sustain you in a week's time. This book is truth. This book is God's Word. It introduces us to the Creator of the universe. It introduces us to this wonderful Savior that we have sung about this morning. This book introduces us to, to light. It, gives, it lightens our pathway. This book gives to us joy and peace. This book gives to us hope. This book gives to us comfort. This book gives to us knowledge and wisdom. James says, the Word of God implanted into our heart is able to save us. We should be eager. Eager. Eager to receive the Word of God into our heart. On a daily basis. I don't know where you are at spiritually. Maybe already you are at that point. Where the word of God and you are together every day. I hope that's where you're at. And if that's where you're at. I want to challenge you to grow deeper. To grow in that eagerness. To receive God's word into your heart. Some of you are not there yet. Some of you are not in this word every day. And I want to challenge you to get to that point. That you would understand what this book can do for you. That you would would want to hear from God. It's not just what this book can do for you. But it's the author of this book that you love Him, that He has loved you so much, and you want to love Him, and you want to hear from Him. We should be eager to receive the Word of God into our heart. And wouldn't it be such a good idea for all of us to be doing what the Christians in Berea were doing? It says they were examining the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. I look the word examine up. It means to investigate. 
They're not just reading the Word of God. They are investigating the Word of God. They are scrutinizing the Word of God. Specifically, it's as, as though uh, what a judge does with forensics. to ho- he, He's investigating. He's looking at all of the facts that are before him. He's going to judge. He's going to discern. He's going to sift through the evidence. He is going to inquire. All of that is wrapped up in this word, examine. They're examining the Word of God daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Would you do that for me? For yourself? For this church? Would you examine what I have to say on a Sunday morning and you keep me accountable? You make sure that what I'm saying on a Sunday morning is true? That's what they were doing there in Berea. Can you imagine a church full of people who were in the Word of God to that degree and they're receiving the Word eagerly? They're examining the Scriptures daily? You know what, folks? That could be this church. That could be you. It could be me. That this is where, this is where that discipline comes in. I mentioned to you as as Mason was walking off. We we may we may hit on that word discipline today. It it takes it has taken discipline for that young man to get to this point of being able to play the violin like he plays it. He's had to practice. He's had to spend some time with that violin. In his hand. And I bet when he first picked it up, it didn't sound real good. But he disciplined himself. He worked at it. He took the time. And the same is true with those Olympic athletes. Here a couple of weeks ago, a lot of us were spending our evenings looking at the Olympics, watching the Olympics. Those athletes didn't get to that point of excellence without a lot of discipline in their life. And they do that to receive an earthly prize. A medal that is very rewarding for their effort, but it's a medal that doesn't promise them lasting peace or joy. I, I noticed almost all of them, when they're standing on that, on that pedestal and the, 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 the anthem is playing and, and they've got that medal around their their neck and they're holding it with their hand and and they're so proud of it and rightfully so and when the anthem finishes what do a lot of them do they kiss that medal it's it's bringing them great joy at that moment but that medal cannot give to them lasting joy or peace but you know what the word of god says that it can give us lasting joy and peace. We've got to discipline ourselves. Let me read to you verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men, We see the same cycle at Berea as what we have seen at Thessalonica. The Word of God is preached, and there are people then who 
believe. Could I speak to you for just a moment about that word believe? It means to commit to one's trust, to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to place confidence in. And of course, the one whom we are putting our trust in is Jesus. We are believing that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Paul is preaching to these folks at Berea and they are believing what he's saying about Jesus. I think it was a couple of Monday nights ago, Josh down here on the second row, we were together. And I asked him, Josh, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And he said, yes. And what he is saying in, in, in that, he's agreeing with me that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Jesus is the Son of God who has come here. He gave His life for us on the cross and He raised up from the dead on the third day. You know what else belief means? When it says somebody believes... In Jesus, it means that they are willing to do whatever he wants them to do. It's not just this kind of knowledge. It's this kind of knowledge. True belief goes from here to here. I I understand who Jesus is. I understand what he has done for me. I want to give my life to him. That's true belief. And so in verse 12, there were more believers being added to their number. But you see the same cycle continuing in Berea as what has been seen in Thessalonica. There's, there's, there's preaching, there's conversions, and then there's more persecution. Verse 13 of chapter 17 says, But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And if you read on in verse 14, Paul takes off for the next city. I've said it before. There is a time and a place to get out of Dodge. And for Paul, this was one of those times. Just move on to the next place and preach some more. But in this instance, in Berea, he leaves behind Silas and Timothy. I'm sure to help with the new Christians who have accepted Christ, he's leaving these co-workers of his behind to help them get grounded in their faith. Apparently, they weren't quite the target for persecution that Paul was. Now, we've talked a lot today about different responses that we ought to have to the Word of God. We've talked about eagerly receiving the Word of God into our heart. We've talked about believing the Word of God. We've talked about examining the Word of God daily. 
One other response I just want to highlight for you, it's what Paul was doing, and that is a response to the Word of God. We need to share it. We need to share it with others. You know, if Paul had not been sharing the Word of God with others, there would have been so many people left out of the faith. There are people that only you can reach. I exhort you, share the Word of God with other people. Let me read to you a piece that I received in the mail. It's a letter from Matt Proctor. Received it. It's dated back in April of this year. He says, in September 1998, a New York Times headline read this. Joe Miller, who did his part for baseball, is dead at 95. Well, it seemed a strange headline. While Joe was a fine college pitcher, he made a fortune as a renowned industrial chemist. So what was Joe Miller's part for baseball? When Joe was a high schooler in the Bronx, he wanted his best friend, a football star, to play baseball. His friend wasn't interested, and besides, the young man's parents were pressuring him to drop sports altogether to concentrate on his studies. But Joe finally prevailed, and his friend joined the baseball team, leading them to the New York City High School Championship. Joe's friend caught a scout's eye and signed his name, Lou Gehrig. To, to a contract with the New York Yankees. When Joe died, his prized possession was not his art collection or expensive cars. It was the old glove he bought at age 14 to teach Hall of Famer Lou Gehrig how to play baseball. Joe Miller did his part for baseball by recruiting one of the all-time greats. And Matt Proctor in his letter says this, Your greatest contribution to God's kingdom might be somebody that you raise up. Share the word with others. Recruit others to join the team of Jesus' followers. Now, now guaranteed, most of the people that we talk with and that we recruit for the team of Jesus, they're just going to be ordinary people like you and me. And that's good. That's wonderful. That's what the kingdom of God is made up of mostly, is just plain, ordinary people. But you know what? Somewhere, someone might, Lead a Lou Gehrig to the faith, so to speak. Maybe you could recruit the next Billy Graham and not even know it. You're just sharing your faith. You're just sharing the Word of God with others. Maybe you'll recruit the next A.J. Law. Maybe you'll recruit the next Apostle Paul and not even know it. But you're just doing you're supposed to do. You're sharing the Word of God with others. The question is, 
will you, will you share the Word of God with others? Will you believe the Word and eagerly receive the Word into your heart? Will you examine the Scriptures daily, giving it a chance to change your life? Let's pray together. God, might we respond to your word as we should. As a people who love you and we are excited to have a word from you. And so, Lord, help us to come on a Sunday morning eager to hear the word. Whoever's preaching, we're just eager to hear the Word. And help us to be eager enough that we're looking into the Word on a daily basis. Lord, would you just help us to be people of the book. We pray this in Jesus' name.